Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. Hope you had a great week. I was watching a live Tesla event, which some of you may have also caught. It was, eh, I don't know. It, Musk showed off a prototype for a humanoid robot that Tesla intends to make called Optimus. Now, this is a robot that Musk has said will one day be the most valuable part of the company's business. And who knows, Musk is often right. He's also wrong a lot of the time. Either way, the prototype looked surprisingly like a science project, sort of janky, uneven, like it might topple right over. But the strategy behind its development is pretty interesting. Because Musk wants to make a lot of these things and he wants to make them affordable or relatively affordable, he said he guessed that they would probably cost less than $20,000 each. Tesla is relying heavily on a lot of the work it's already done and the hardware and software it's already developed for use in its advanced driver assistance system. Now, it seems very much like these projects are worlds apart, or perhaps should be, but we'll see where Optimus gets with Tesla-designed and built actuators and battery packs and control systems, to quote Musk on this front. At least the whole demonstration was a big improvement over last year when Musk first laid out the vision for Optimus by putting a dancer on stage in a white leotard. And now on to a couple of other news stories before we jump into this week's interview with Alex Wolchko, a former staff research scientist at Google Research, who is now an entrepreneur in residence at Google's venture arm GV, where he's hoping to accelerate better treatments for disease by taking a fairly unique approach which is to digitize odors. We didn't realize this, but apparently this is a new frontier in AI. Alex was joined by Krishna Yeshwant, who helps steward the GV investing team, co-leads GV's life sciences group, and who also established GV's incubation program, which has been pretty successful to date, as you'll hear in our interview. But now, those news stories. The dream is not living up to the reality. That's what CIOs are telling KPMG in a recent survey about cloud computing. Yesterday, KPMG reported that roughly 67% of 1,000 U.S. CIOs said they have yet to see a significant return on their cloud investments. Storing data in the cloud was supposed to save companies money by allowing them to forego investments in costly data warehouses and applications. But that has hardly been the case for Carhartt, which makes work close. As CIO Katrina Agusti told the Wall Street Journal yesterday, Carhartt has been surprised by the high costs of storing data in the cloud. In an effort to save money, the company began migrating its data to the cloud back in 2018, but it has since realized that the move will do little to contain costs. Part of the problem is that companies are storing too much data in the cloud and using multiple cloud providers rather than relying on one vendor. Other issues include a lack of technical expertise to manage cloud deployments and significant security and compliance requirements. All of this is a bit surprising given global cloud spending is expected to surpass $830 billion this year, but it definitely explains the rash of startups that are cropping up with the mission of helping companies manage their cloud spend. Meanwhile, CIOs appear to be hedging their bets. As Diane Comer, Chief Information and Technology Officer at Kaiser Permanente, told the journal, you really do need to not just take it for granted that cloud is where you should head. 
Elon Musk loves to make news on Twitter, and yesterday was no exception. On Thursday morning, the billionaire tweeted that Tesla's Cybertruck will be, quote, waterproof enough to serve briefly as a boat. Musk apparently intends that the Cybertruck should be able to float long enough to cross the channel between SpaceX's Starbase launch facility and South Padre Island in southern Texas, a distance of about three-tenths of a mile at its shortest point. There are more than a couple of problems with Musk's statement, as the Twitterverse was more than happy to point out. First, the Cybertruck still does not exist. Musk first unveiled a demo model of the truck in 2019, but Tesla has pushed back its delivery date from mid-2021 to mid-2023. Second, Musk is effectively encouraging his army of sycophantic followers to drive their trucks into deep water. Is this really a good idea? I can only imagine all of the supportive DMs that Musk has received from fanboys like Jason Kalkanis, who told Musk he was so supportive of Musk's plan to purchase Twitter that he was willing to jump on a grenade for Elon. Still, doesn't Musk have enough problems with the FTC, which reportedly is already investigating whether Tesla is making false claims about its full safe driving feature? At press time, Musk was announcing Tesla's latest plan to build a humanoid robot and could not be reached for comment. Up next, Connie's interview with Alex Wilchko and Krishna Yeshwant of GV, the venture arm of Alphabet. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hi, this is Andrew Gluck, founder of Irreverent VC. You probably don't hear many venture capitalists advertise on podcasts, but we do things differently here. I co-founded and exited a large digital marketing agency, so I'm an operator at heart, and I'm looking for the next big thing at the intersection of digital marketing and commerce. I also like to invest early. My firm, Irreverent VC, was a first investor in companies like Lunchbox and Kashish, and we typically invest 300 to 500K. We are also proud that approximately 50% of our investments are in underrepresented founders. If Irreverent VC sounds like it might be a good fit for you, please visit irreverent.com. That's irreverent, I-R-R-V-R-N-T.com. Talk to you soon. And now, here's Connie's interview with Alex Wilchko and Krishna Yeshwant of GV, the venture arm of Alphabet. Guys, thank you so much for joining me today. Mandy, your colleague at GV, told me a little bit about what you're working on. And it's so interesting to me. Alex, if we could start with you, you just joined GV from Google AI. You've long been focused on this intersection of machine learning and biology, and you're more focused now on this idea of digitizing the sense of smell. I'm seeing that you worked with this Harvard professor on the same issue years ago. Is that correct? Yeah. If you remember one thing about me, or if you take away one thing, is that I am completely obsessed with scent and olfaction and have been my entire life. And so all of my training was actually in olfaction. So I first started really getting into this stuff professionally in graduate school with Professor Bob Data at a Harvard Medical School. And I learned a great deal of what I know today about olfaction from him and his laboratory and uh, just have been taking it further and further and further down the rabbit hole. And here we are today. I have to say, again, it's such a foreign concept to me. So I think it's interesting that you 
both gravitated to this specific area. Toward what end? I mean, you're trying to understand better how to build neural networks based on how people process information about odors and compartmentalize that information. Can you just give us a little? Yeah, so let's take a step back. Mm -hmm. So every time computers got a new sense, like to see or to hear, society completely changed for the better. So when we first learned how to store visual images in the 19th century and eventually how to store them on computers in the 20th century, all of a sudden we could do things like take x-rays. We could do things like store memories of the visual world. And we didn't need painters to do it. Everybody could do it. It really completely changed our society and our species. And then we did it again for hearing. And then we had music that was available to the masses. We had the ability to record voices of people that were in our lives before, record memories. So every time computers gained a human sense, the world got better. But computers can't smell. They have no ability to detect the chemical world. And we can't store the really powerful memories that we associate with smell, like the smell of my grandmother's home. It's Mm -hmm. just gone. It only lives in my mind, right? That house was bought. It was remodeled. There's the smells of people that I love. There's smells of places that I've been, and those are completely ephemeral today. And there's also a lot of information and smell that we don't know how to fully capture or act on. So we know that diseases have a smell. Mm -hmm. We know that different wellness and health states have a smell. Plants, when they're sick or when they're healthy, smell different. Mm -hmm. So just the amount of information that's out there in the world that we could potentially act on to make our lives longer, make our lives more joyous, grow more food, that's really only able to to happen inside of living things, inside of living noses. But if we could automate that, we could have a massive impact and a positive impact on society. And can you walk me through some of the, I guess, applications that you see coming from your research? I think a North Star for me, and I don't know how long it's going to take to get there, but it's important that we do, is that we be able to smell diseases earlier, to detect diseases earlier than we currently can. So there's lots of stories that are out there, lots of anecdotes and various papers and research has built up a picture to me that we can smell Parkinson's much, much earlier than we could otherwise detect it. We can smell diseases much, much earlier. And if we could actually build devices that can turn that information into digital representations, then potentially we could catch diseases earlier and learn how to treat them better. That's the promise to me, is that we'd be able to lengthen people's lives and improve people's lives. How do we know that we can detect Parkinson's earlier than any other way through scent? So there's a lot of stories that are out there. And again, there's not one single slam dunk that we can detect diseases earlier, but there's a lot of stories that all have their strengths and weaknesses that add up to a clear picture. So for Parkinson's, there's a nurse that first reported that she could smell Parkinson's in her husband before he actually developed it. And this is a story that has been fleshed out a lot more completely than other diseases, but they put her to the test and they gathered t-shirts that men had worn half with Parkinson's, half without Parkinson's and said, Hey, can you tell which of these t-shirts were worn by a person with this disease or without. And she got almost all of them right, except for one. She said, no, actually, I think think you're wrong. And that person that the doctors originally thought she had gotten incorrect did end up developing Parkinson's disease. And they took the story further and tried to isolate exactly what it was that she was smelling. And researchers found the exact part of the body and the exact material being emitted by the body, this waxy substance called sebum, that is excreted by cells on your back. And they found the exact molecules that she was smelling. 
but it was her nose and it was her ability to take an olfactory picture of the world and turn it into a notion of whether or not someone was sick. That's what preceded all of that. Okay. This is a random question that came to mind when I was just looking at some of the research that Professor Data had done at Harvard Medical School. Are there any concerns that odors could be manipulated for certain means? Again, it's probably silly, but perhaps to make people think that they're in danger when they aren't or alternately safe when they're in danger. I just feel like there's always so much good that can come out of new technologies, but there's always these second order bad things that we don't necessarily think through. Yeah. And it's certainly important whenever a new area of technology is developed to think through those things for Mm -hmm. sure. And one area that I think is nascent, it's not at all clear where it could go, but Mm -hmm. at least I personally am relaxed by certain sense and I don't know why. And so I think there's a lot for us to learn in that space. Also, before we talk a little bit more about what you are perhaps hoping and thinking about developing under GV, have you at all been studying the effects of COVID-19 on sense of smell? So me personally, no, but my former mentors have certainly been looking at this very, very closely. One thing that we had to adapt to as we were completing our research, which we put out in the recent blog post, is we started a lot of this research into what people think things smell like when COVID was just starting. Right. I saw that in 2020. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we had to be very careful because one of the symptoms that was emerging that people were finding early in the pandemic is some people would lose their sense of smell when they got COVID. And if you're studying what people think things smell like, you need to be very, very careful if folks have suddenly become anosmic. That's Mm -hmm. the term for having lost the sense of smell. And so we had to develop all kinds of new checks and balances into our research protocols just to see if people had lost their sense of smell and if they were actually able to report what they were smelling. It's so fascinating. The breakthrough that I, as I understand it, just again, giving this a cursory look was that the brain organizes information about orders. And I thought it was so interesting that in COVID, it seems to reorganize that information, sometimes maybe putting it in the wrong file. Yeah. And what we're discovering is how people recover from anosmia may affect their sense of smell. I think there's a lot to learn there. I'm not necessarily the best person to speak to that. Some of my colleagues have looked very, very deeply into that though. So you've joined GV now with the idea of developing a company that will help suss out disease faster through smell. I think the opportunity in front of us is to digitize the sense of smell. And one of the biggest and best applications, but certainly the hardest, but the furthest in the future, but the most important is to understand the relationship between what things smell like and health and wellness. Mm -hmm. So that's certainly my North Star. And that's, I think, the reason why it's a natural fit to work through this idea on the GV Life Sciences team. So what sorts of resources are available to you? And will you be partnering with some of your former colleagues at Harvard Medical School? Because I'm assuming you need access to many data sets. Yeah. So what's really wonderful about starting to work on this idea today versus maybe 10 years ago, is the ecosystem of people that are working on olfaction or scent has grown dramatically. And I think the attention that's being paid to our sense of smell, because now we're understanding how important it is when we lose it, that this really hit home a lot during COVID-19. This is a much richer ecosystem of folks that are working and thinking in olfaction more broadly today. Are there already companies up and running that are trying to do what you perhaps hope to do? It's a vibrant ecosystem and there's lots of folks that are working on different pieces of it. And what's really wonderful about joining GV as an entrepreneur in residence is being able to take the broad view and thinking about how I can have the most impact in this space in digital olfaction. And Krishna, I know that you've helped lead the charge there with GV's incubation program, helping start companies like Flatiron, Rome Therapeutics, and Verve Therapeutics. I saw that Rome's 
CEO and founder was an EIR at GV for two years. Is there a timeline for projects like this where you bring somebody in and you hope that they can get something off the ground in a couple of years? We take an approach with our EIR program, which tends to be very focused on the specific person. So Rosanna Capeller, I got to know years ago when she was working on a company called Nimbus Therapeutics, which was a company that was using computational approaches to help develop small molecules that could be used as drugs. And I saw what she did there and the causal role she had in moving that whole field forward and actually developing some really impressive drugs. And we had a dinner and she said she was ready to do her next thing. And uh, when we brought her on as an EIR, we didn't necessarily think that she was going to work in the area that Rome Therapeutics works on in this repeated areas of the genome, ways that that can express new biology. What we knew is that she's somebody who's able to causally explore really challenging areas. At that time, the use of computation and discovering new small molecules and new drugs. And back then, there hadn't been a lot of success doing that, but she mm -hmm. really started opening that field up in a very pragmatic way. And so the way we look at our EIRs is that we're building the company around the person. And if that person has a couple false starts as they go after something, that's fine. And then when they're really ready to go, we'd like to be part of the company that they launch. And then we'd ideally like to maintain a relationship with them, hopefully indefinitely. And that's one of the great things I think about a firm like GV, where we have a large number of companies we're part of, as we invest, as we build and are part of a variety of companies, that's not the end. We maintain that network and that connection. And that's not a one-way street where GV just puts money into those companies. We have a lot of dialogue and ideation. And with Alex, that started even before the, the work that, that he's, he's working on now. Years ago, when he was working on previous companies, we started to get to know each other. And when he was at Google Research, it just struck us and you're seeing it firsthand now, it's just an amazing explainer of things. And there's so much stuff happening in the machine learning world. And we ended up developing a real friendship and ongoing conversation with Alex around just what's happening in the world of machine learning. How does it get applied to different areas? We started doing a regular meeting around this space in the Cambridge area, and that turned into a podcast called Theory and Practice, which one of my colleagues, Anthony and Alex co-host, and they explore the world of machine learning and other tools and how they can be applied in a variety of ways. And that's turned into this moment where he was ready to really go for a new idea. And we said, well, we love Alex. We're excited about uh, the idea of digitizing scent. And so let's go for it. But as you can hear, this is a big idea. It's complicated. The North Star that Alex is describing will take a while to get to. And as we build the pieces from here to there, our approach to that is going to be to invest in Alex, and then he'll figure out how to go from here to there. And whether it's Rosanna, Sarmoitza, Kevin, other folks could around the table, I think that's been their experience. And I think you'll see us do more of that. That's great. Well, so Alex, I have to check out your podcast. No wonder you've got that nice big microphone. <laughs> yeah, Theory got, and I, practice. Exactly. Theory and practice. Yeah. <laughs> just exploring this weird intersection between what computers can do and the kinds of things we want to explore about how life works and how we can make life work better and keep people healthy and live longer. And now I think there's a lot of people that care a lot about that intersection. And so the podcast is about exploring folks that live at that boundary, that there's just a lot of amazing people, a lot of amazing conversations we've been able to have. Well, again, your colleague, Bob Data sounds interesting. One thing that he said, he was maybe speaking to an interview at Harvard that I didn't quite understand. He said that he hopes to actually build a machine and to be able to someday create a controllable virtual olfactory world for a person. But he said, in order to do that, we need to understand how the brain encodes information about smells. What does that mean, a controllable virtual olfactory world? 
I think you'd have to go back and ask Bob exactly. Um, <laughs> but what I, I think the possibility is, look at vision. Right now, we are talking into and looking into devices that turn atoms into bits. And those bits are shuttled across the country. And they're turned back into atoms. And we can experience each other, not with perfect fidelity, but like we're together. And we're missing all the other senses, the most personal of which and the most emotional of which is scent. And in order to bring presence, I think, to a lot of virtual experiences, you're going to have to bring the other senses. And that to me is a really critical component of improving the presence and emotional impact of the virtual world, having a digital representation of scent. Krishna, going back to your program. So you've got Alex who's joined you. How many EIRs do you have at GV at any one time? There's no set quota that we have. It's very bespoke. Right now, Alex will join as our fifth EIR. Ever or concurrently? Certainly in our life sciences, I'd say ever, but they're all still very much attached to, to GV. So Rosanna's mm-hmm. off and has launched Rome, but but we'd still very much consider her part of the GV family and very much connected. And Alex is at the beginning of that. What it looks like over time, again, we're not defining it as the company has to be launched and out the door in any specific time frame. I think the way I'd like to think of it is we have this large platform of Google Ventures. And what we can do with that is help people who have real long-term aspirations, chart a path to get to them and not feel the pressure of having to launch right away, but to be able to take a long-term perspective and be able to try things before really jumping out into the wild. And you can only really offer that opportunity to somebody who has the actual discipline and desire to go for it, because otherwise somebody might actually just sit there for years and years without actually launching a company. So we're looking for people who have that aspiration, who may need some context to be able to de-risk some of the ideas. And then we'll make our whole network and all the resources we have available to to go for it when the moment's right. So this is really a big deal. I mean, this is pretty atypical that you start building something around somebody like Alex. I mean, you've created some very notable companies in the past, like Flatiron Health, Verve Therapeutics, which went public. Was it last year? A gene editing company. Krishna, one thing I did want to ask is how GV and Google and an alphabet above everyone thinks about these companies because obviously alphabet doesn't need any money. I'm sure alphabet would disagree, but <laughs> somebody, <laughs> shareholders, somebody would disagree. Right, right. That's true. <laughs> oh, well, I was going to say, you know, Flatiron Health sold to Roche in 2018 for $1.9 billion. And I just thought that's interesting that they didn't decide to continue trying to forge ahead on their own. Maybe you could help explain how you think about the path of these companies. And so why Flatiron you sold, why Verve you took public? So many of these things are really bespoke to the people in the moment. And the way we have thought about things in our life sciences work is really around where the world needs to go. And sometimes the path from here to there happens through one company. Sometimes it happens through multiple companies. Sometimes those companies work in sequence. Sometimes they work in parallel. When we made the investment in Flatiron, we also, a few years before, had made an investment in a company called Foundation Medicine. And actually, Roche ended up buying both of those companies. And at least to our eye, we were always excited about the possibility of the combination of the genetic data that came out of Foundation Medicine and the patient-level data that came out of Flatiron and what sorts of opportunities that would underwrite. And that was all in cancer. And then the question is, how does that happen in all the rest of human disease? And so to us, that's the journey. The journey is how do we take all this data that's produced Mm -hmm. as a byproduct of day-to-day clinical work and turn it into information and insight that helps discovery and clinical trial and ultimately 
launches of these drugs? And how do we do that across all areas? And Amy Abernathy, who was at Flatiron and now is at Verily, the term she often uses is one that's been dubbed by the field as a learning health system. That's a very big idea. If we could have one company that really did that, it would probably be a Google-sized company. And so sometimes that happens and sometimes you put the pieces in place over time to to do that. And so really, it's just a matter of what makes the most sense for each company along the way. Verve, our intent there was to say, there's a lot of gene editing companies out there that have platforms. We said, let's focus on a specific target. We want to edit out PCSK9, which is a gene that, as far as we can tell, its only function is to increase people's cardiac risk. And so what would happen if we were able to edit that out? And what's been amazing about that company is the focus that they've had in going after that target and other cardiac targets has allowed them to move incredibly quickly and in a very responsible way to get these sorts of novel therapies to patients. They've since dosed their first patient in the space. So I I think our intent behind these companies is purely to see the healthcare system or to see society change in these ways. And sometimes we can tell that story through one company. Sometimes it's multiple ones. Alex is telling his story about diagnosing human disease using scent. That's a profound vision. And can we do that from where we are today to get all the way there? I think Alex is somebody who has that full vision. So he's putting together a path to get from here to there. And our intent is purely to support that vision, support the people who are underwriting that and feel very grateful that Google Ventures and Alphabet behind it has given us the ability to do that here and in multiple areas. And guys, before I let you go, Alex, can you share a little bit more about that path to the point about focusing on one therapeutic at a time? You mentioned Parkinson's. Is there any thought to just focusing first on being able to diagnose Parkinson's and building around that? Or is it more like a multi-pronged approach? It's a great question. The way that I think about this is, again, hearkening back to the other senses. There's just a thousand things you could do. If you could take the visual world, or if you could take all sound and store it into computer and analyze it. And that's the two edges of the sword. One is there's so many opportunities, so many places to start. And then on the other hand, you have to focus. And so that's where I spend a lot of my time thinking is what's the right path specifically to chart towards our North Star, which is improving the well-being and length of human life. And uh, that's what I'm really excited to dig into and to work on at GV as an EIR. And uh, we'll certainly have more to share in terms of detail and concreteness as time unfolds. One last question. Sometimes people talk about, what is it, generalized artificial intelligence. I'm not sure if that's the right language, but people say it's five years, 10 years, 500 years away. Do you have any idea when you talk to people who are immersed in this world as you are, how far away we are from digitizing the sense of smell? It took maybe a hundred years to digitize our sense of sight. And I think we can compress digitizing our sense of smell into a fraction of that. It's not going to be easy. It's going to take a lot of work, but um, now's a good time to start. Well, I'd love to stay in touch and hear how your progress is coming along. I certainly look forward to hearing more about what you're working on. Guys, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everybody, and special thanks to Andrew Gluck of Irreverent VC. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you here next week.